What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. It'll be a hard day. But I guarantee you that 160 days ride that way. There's nothing but salt. At least that way, you know, we might be able to, together, come across some kind of redemption. We're just shy of 200 days into 2015, Adam. Do we keep riding or turn back? Nothing but Mission Impossible sequels and a vacation reboot that way, Josh. I say we turn back here and share our top five movies of the year so far. We got enough gasoline for a top five? Let's hope so. Plus, Massacre Theater and more. What a lovely day. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Harry's. For guys like you who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. We're also presented by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Right now at Movie, you'll find A Summer's Tale. It's finally summer, and what better way to ring in this season than with Eric Romare. Literate, observant, deceptively gentle, and full of insight. His Tales of the Four Seasons were French cinema highlights of the 90s, and A Summer's Tale can stand with his best. Three films are also at Movie that are honoring this month's San Francisco Pride celebration. A firebomb from New Queen Cinema Enfant Terrible Craig Araki, The Living End. Derek Jarman's wild twist on British costume drama Wittgenstein, featuring his muse Tilda Swinton. And believe it or not, a silent film tackling LGBT sexuality from a canonical auteur, Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1924 melodrama Michael. Dreyer coming up here in two weeks in my class this summer where we're talking about crisis of faith movies so i'm trying to get primed for or debt finally over at movie like us some of the folks at movie were pretty disappointed by jurassic world so they're counter programming with two monster favorites the original the lost world from 1925 featuring groundbreaking stop action special effects and bong joon ho's wildly successful satire horror family monster movie the host every day over at movie their curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it it's all for just 4.99 a month you can also use their mobile app to download films to watch offline our listeners can try movie free for a month just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Killer robots, killer dinosaurs, killer robot dinosaurs, and some very fast cars have dominated the box office so far this year. We promise, though, you'll be safe from death by Indominus Rex or Vin Diesel as we count down our top five films of the year so far. Where were the killer robot dinosaurs? Did I miss those in Jurassic World or... Did I, I guess you missed those. More importantly, did I miss a Transformers movie? How, how could that have happened? Just wait. The killer robot dinosaurs are in my number one pick, Josh. Oh, okay. We'll get there. Before we get to the films that did stand out for us in the first half of the year, let's take a couple minutes to recap the year in film spotting. Josh, maybe we have some fairly new listeners to the show. They don't know what they've missed this year. We have had, despite having a week off last week for July 4th and some revisit top fives here over the summer, a pretty busy 
year. And I think we have covered some really good stuff. First of all, the film spotting Golden Brick. We like to give out that award every year to a film that reflects a distinct vision by a filmmaker, a young emerging filmmaker. And maybe it's a movie that kind of flew under the radar a little bit. It is not a film that got a lot of mainstream press necessarily, or you saw publicized everywhere and played at the multiplex. And we do have a couple titles that we want to encourage people to seek out before we do announce those Golden Brick nominees a bit later in the year. The Duke of Burgundy, a film from writer-director Peter Strickland, who did Barbarian Sound Studio. That's certainly in contention. And Matt Shepard is a friend of mine, a documentary I talked about earlier in the year that is about Matthew Shepard and that tragic hate crime. And Buzzard from writer-director Joel Petrikas, another one that we were both very high on. And I feel a little bit bad. It was in contention for this top five best movies of the year so far, but just missed the cut for me. I'll be sharing a little bit about another potential Golden Brick candidate later in the show. That's The Tribe, which is a film from Ukraine. Interesting formally, newer filmmaker as well, so meets a lot of those criteria, and we'll spend a little bit of time on that a bit later in the show. We are updating that Golden Brick nominee page as we get to some of those nominees, whether one of us or both of us talks about them on the show. If you want to see that list, go to filmspotting.net, and under Top Fives, there's a Golden Brick link. You can also go to our website and see our marathon. So far, we've only done one marathon this year, but safe to say it was eye-opening. It was transformative. We watched six films from Indian auteur Satyajit Ray, including the Apu trilogy. All three of those films are wonderful, but I think my favorite film of the bunch as I reflect back, hopefully correctly, on our Marathon Awards was a film called The Big City, just another masterpiece from Ray. And if we were doing top five of the year so far, films we've just seen, not that were released in 2015, Mm -hmm. I think probably four Sajidit Ray films would be on my list. And I'd find room for number five, maybe one Mm -hmm. 2015 film. They were that good and great opportunity to fill in a viewing gap in our history of watching movies. So that's been a highlight of the year so far for me. Those Ray movies no longer blind spots. They actually, at some point down the road, could be in contention for a Sacred Cow review as a masterpiece or a film that we revere that we're going to revisit. Maybe we haven't seen it in a long time. We had a few of those this year as well. Unforgiven, we did with Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune when he stopped by. And after that discussion, it's still considered sacred. Mm -hmm. Michael had a few quibbles with the ending. I think he's unfairly maligned now, has this reputation of not liking Unforgiven, but that's not quite the case. He just had some trouble with the ending, but you and I were on board all the way through. Definitely that one's still sacred. The Breakfast Club, that was a fun discussion on the occasion of its 30th anniversary. We're going to say that one's still sacred, too, even though I feel it has some makeover issues. Um, you're okay with Literally, the, you're okay with the makeover issues. in there. Yeah, it's uh, a little but, more holy for me than it is for you. Yes, well, that's a good way to put it. Reservoir Dogs, that one I was so glad to revisit because it helped me clarify some things about my on and off again relationship with Quentin Tarantino, but still overall gets the sacred branding as well. We both really thought that one held up and we fit in Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. That was sort of um, to help uh, wash down Cameron Crowe's Aloha. Yeah, we <laughs> couldn't just devote a review to Aloha. <laughs> no, that wouldn't have been fair to anybody, including Cameron Crowe. So mm-hmm. we went ahead and did the Sacred Cow review of Say Anything. That one held up as well. That one held up. And we've got to find one that doesn't. Aloha did not. It's about time, we'll right? Never be a sacred cow. You're right. I don't think we've ever had a sacred cow that didn't hold up as a sacred cow. I mean, Michael did famously rip on Raiders of the Lost Ark, only one of the greatest 
action movies of all time. Yeah, that was that was but other rough. Than that, oh, to wait, Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, yeah, I, I, you were the I should guy. probably admit that I didn't give that one the seal of approval. No, you didn't. Um, but yeah, other than that, we've been pretty approving. We have. If you want to seek out any of those reviews, including those Sacred Cow discussions, we do encourage you to do that. You can find all those shows archived at filmspotting.net. At our website, we also ask bi-weekly poll questions and the one we set up anticipating this week's show was a simple question we wanted to know what your favorite film of the year so far was we're going to save those results for a bit later but that poll did generate a ton of great feedback from you and we're going to be sharing some of that feedback as we make our way through our picks as regular listeners know when we do these best of shows we do like to include some guest voices we have some fellow critics chiming in with a voicemail with their pick for the best film of the year so far, let's get it started with David Ehrlich. This is David Ehrlich from Time Out New York and Little White Lies magazine. And I'm calling in to tell you that about my favorite film of the year so far, which is Don Herzfeld's World of Tomorrow. It's only 16 minutes long. It's the animator's latest and greatest film. It won the Grand Jury Prize for Shorts at Sundance and for animated shorts at South by Southwest. And World of Tomorrow tells the story of a four-year-old girl named Emily who suddenly finds herself engaged in conversation with her third-generation clone, who speaks to her from and introduces her to a distant future where bodies grow without brains and robots write sad poetry and discount time travel is stranding all of Earth's poor people to die in outer space. Uh, it features incredible performances from uh, one from British animator Julia Pott as the older Emily and Hertzfeld's own niece, Winona May, as Emily Prime. Uh, whose dialogue he surreptitiously recorded and then built the film around. Uh, it's as mortally funny as anything Hertzfeld, who you might know from films like It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is a, a uh, simulation of three shorts that he made, uh, has ever made. And it's touched with a bittersweet understanding that life is, is only so lovely because there's no way not to take it for granted. It's, it's one of the most indelible short films that I can think of uh, this side of La Jetée. Uh, Chris Marker's film from 1962, and it will almost certainly be my favorite film of the year uh, around December, as well, of course, as now in July. It's on Vimeo. You can rent it for 30 days uh, for $3.99 on Vimeo On Demand, uh, and it is the best almost $4 you will spend all year and will probably rent it more than once because you'll always want to have it on tap. So uh, World of Tomorrow by Don Herzfeld, the best film of 2015 thus far. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great show. Bye. So a little bit of an off-the-beaten-path pick from David Ehrlich, Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, and Josh, indicative of how hectic my life has been lately, World of Tomorrow, under 17 minutes long, I'm only halfway through it. <laughs> how does that even happen? I couldn't finish it. What? I couldn't finish what? it before the show. Did, I'm just did you, like, start it while you were taking the dog out, and <laughs> she got done soon, and it was like, all right, I guess... This is over. Close enough. Okay. Well, Nine minutes left. I, I'll get to it. Uh, you should. I, I mean, I did manage to find the 16 minutes that it took to watch World of Tomorrow, though it's somewhat appalling that it took me this long. People have been talking about this film since Sundance, and David's pick, knowing that he had picked it, uh, pushed me over the edge. It's really something. I mean, it's... Uh, in those 16 minutes, as he mentioned, it packs in so much in terms of ideas, and the animation is deceptively simple. These stick figures, I'm shocked how much I felt for these stick figures, especially this little toddler, just based on the vocal performances and what happens to them and what may happen to them. And seeing this world that the older 
Emily is living in. This thing is just, uh, it's witty. It's morbidly witty, so I don't want it to sound like it's entirely depressing, but it's a vision of a future and our continual push for a fountain of youth and using new technology to try to find that. And yet all it does, at least in this case, is make mortality stare us even more starkly in the face. It's a it's a bit of a rough ride, uh, but that animation helps to to move you through it. And the backgrounds going on here behind the stick figures that are often evocative of the emotions that are being either experienced or denied in the case of the mm-hmm. older Emily. Uh, those are really something. Uh, it's it's a pretty, pretty impressive piece of work. Well, I want to note, Josh, that I got all of that out of the first nine minutes. <laughs> you so, don't need to finish it? No, I think I'm good so far. <laughs> no, you do, because the catch your breath moment comes probably in the last two minutes has to do with the toddler and that's when i realized like how attached i was to her there's a time travel let's just say glitch and for about 13 seconds there i was like you're not going to do this to us (laughs) what i was almost yelling at the screen and i'll just leave it there but you should really finish it okay i definitely will finish don hertzfeld's world of tomorrow david ehrlich's pick for the number one film of 2015 so far and actually this wasn't planned, but looking over my list of my five picks, Josh, a perfectly appropriate choice, I think, because this notion of mortality, coming to terms with our mortality, our age, and maybe even in the case of one movie, a quest for immortality on the part of some of the characters, that ran through some of these picks this year, or maybe it was just my list. Let's get to your list, Josh, your number five movie of 2015 so far. I think this goes back to a conversation we had in January, possibly. It was very early on. What we do in the shadows is what I have at number five. Seems like a long time ago that we talked about that. Maybe the redeeming virtue of reality television is the subgenre that we've gotten in response. These reality TV spoof projects that just make fun of the whole entity. We've got right now Lifetime's Unreal. That's getting all sorts of praise. And then this year gave us what we do in the shadows. This is a feature mockumentary from New Zealand, and it's about four vampire roommates. Jermaine Clement and Taika Watiti wrote, directed, and they star as two of the vampires. And if you're at all familiar with their work on the HBO series, Flight of the Concords, then you're going to have some idea of the comic tone going on here. It's at once deadpan and absurd, which is perfect really for a reality TV spoof that's trying to lend this documentary air to these ridiculously fantastical premises. I liked Spy. We both liked Buzzard, which you mentioned earlier, and Inside Out, that has a ton of laughs as well. But what we do in the shadows is, up to this point, the funniest film of the year. Now, we didn't include this in our poll of listener's choice for the best film of the year. Other. It's in the other option, but we didn't name it. And we heard from Nicole in San Francisco about that. But no love for what we do in the shadows. Maybe it technically came out in 2014 or something, but wakey, wakey, everybody. I loved Mad Max, too, and I have yet to catch up with Ex Machina, but I cannot think of the last time I laughed out loud nonstop in the theater and remember so many quotable lines months after viewing. Remember, we are werewolves, not swearwolves. This, my favorite of 2015. Is Peter coming? Should we be Peter's 8,000 years old. We're not going to have Peter at the meeting. Okay, so I wanted to have a quick chat about flat responsibilities because, uh, guys, I think that we're not all pulling our weight here. We're not just pointing the finger at you, Deacon. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. 
No, that's not the point, though. You yeah, no, 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 not the I know. flat meeting about how cool you are. I do my flat chores. No, you don't. No, you yes, don't. I do. That's why we're having the flat meeting. It's the definitely one of the funniest films of the year so far, a movie I really enjoyed, and another one of our Golden Brick candidates, actually. I know it will be in the running as we get to that later in the year. And like a couple of my picks, actually, the timing is really good on this. If you haven't seen What We Do in the Shadows yet, it will be available on DVD on July 21, and I think it's streaming mm-hmm. right now on most services. My number five, a movie probably more familiar to most people listening right now, and that is Pixar's Inside Out. I didn't get a chance to be part of that discussion. I was off that week a few weeks ago when Michael Phillips from the Tribune sat in and you reviewed that movie both favorably, though, Josh, you were higher on it than Michael, and I think I may be higher on it than even you, which is remarkable because longtime listeners in the show will know that if you had to predict ahead of time how to rank that hierarchy of who would love a Pixar movie more, it would definitely go Michael, Josh, and then me. And it is reversed here. But beyond the brilliantly executed concept, that concept being we spend a good chunk of our time inside the head of a young girl, and we see how her different emotions are being managed. They're all voiced wonderfully by a variety of actors, including Amy Poehler, who is the leader. She's joy. Louis Black is anger. Bill Hader is in there as fear. That concept really does get pulled off exactly as good as you would have hoped Pixar would do it. And then I mentioned some of those performers, the dynamic voice work here. And I think even though everybody is really good, Polar is perfectly pitched. She's frequently on the verge of sounding like an overly insistent, coked out, (laughs) up with people volunteer, but she never crosses that line. The connection the movie draws between joy and sadness is poignant, I think, if predictable. I mean, I think you see it coming when you meet Joy at the beginning of the film and you recognize that her hair is blue, the exact same color as sadness. But of course, it didn't need to provide some kind of earth-shattering psychological insight. It just needed to get that right. And that's one of the many things it gets right. But what really struck me the most about it, Josh, is how it got grief right. How grief isn't just something we try to avoid naturally, but something we actively work to suppress, as if the slightest expression of it would cause an avalanche of emotion that we'd never dig ourselves out of. That rang really true to me. I'm so glad to see that you have this this high on your list. We hadn't had a chance to talk about it, so I was curious. And by no means, it won't be on mine. I'll, I'll just say that now. Is it because there's any major fault that I see in it? It was really tough, and I had it right there with what we do in the shadows at number five. And you're right about Polar. You know, she she... I always tout Pixar for going for for the zigzag vocal casting, and I think Phyllis Smith is a case where they did that, who I think is actually the best. She's sadness, sadness, right? right. But uh, here they kind of do the more traditional thing of match a comic actor with the personality of, because Joy is pure Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec, but it works. Mm -hmm. It works so well that it was the right decision to make this time. And yeah, Inside Out will be fluctuating on my list, especially after I get a chance to take another look. That is a good point, Josh. We always reserve the right with these lists to completely contradict ourselves at the end of the year and move them around any way we see fit. One of our colleagues, Scott Tobias over at The Dissolve, he never contradicts himself. He's always just dead on, knows exactly what he thinks all the time. Well, maybe not. He hasn't really landed on his favorite film of the year so far, but he did force himself to come up with a pick. And it's this one, which it seems, Josh, coincides with your number four choice. I have no, I'm having all kinds of trouble coming up with a favorite. I probably, because I can't really decide between uh, Mad Max and Inside Out this summer. I need to sort those out. So in the meantime, I think I'm going to stick with It Follows. 
um, which is one of the best horror films, or maybe the best horror film I've seen in several uh, years. Maybe certainly, maybe the best independent horror film I've seen since Blair Witch Project. Um, it's a film that combines uh, really striking sound with a really striking visual style, and uh, you know it's terrifying and smart. And it's a film that even if it weren't a horror film, I'd I'd like to watch because I think it's uh, nicely written and uh, evocative and all those uh, things that you want a movie to be. So uh, I'm gonna stick with it. Follows and uh, and uh, probably bump it down <laughs> sometime later in the year. All right, guys, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad I have the support of Scott on this one because I didn't get it from you or from Michael Phillips. No. He filled in for me on episode 532, and you guys were lukewarm in your review of It Follows. But I was really wowed by this. I think it does something very intriguing with the sex-as-death motif that drives so many horror films from Friday the 13th to Halloween. That was the basis on which much of the recent genre offerings have been built. This time we get a young woman named Jay. She's played by Micah Monroe, who learns after having sex with her boyfriend that he's passed a curse on to her. So he warns her to look out for this slowly approaching figure, which can change in appearance. And sometimes it even looks like somebody she loves, because if it catches her, it's going to kill her. And then the only way for her to escape this curse is to have sex with somebody else. So on the surface, this is an STD parable, right? But writer, director, David Robert Mitchell, he gives the movie this metaphysical air. There's a lot of widescreen imagery and deep focus cinematography that that captured that for me. And this gets us, for me, it got us beyond these simple bodily concerns so that sexual activity really has spiritual implications for the characters in the movie. And this is also noticeable for spending time on its characters and getting into their heads for a horror film. Speaking of cinematography, I think It Follows has one of the year's best individual shots, that opening 360-degree single take of some odd and unnerving activity that's taking place on this average suburban street. The New York Times' Mikado Murphy, he actually did one of his Anatomy of a Scene videos with Mitchell on that opening shot. We can link to that in the show notes. So It Follows, it's streaming right now as well, I believe. Otherwise, it's going to be on DVD coming up soon here, July 14. I do love the opening to It Follows, and even though it's true, I was overall lukewarm on it. It's a film that is doing so many interesting things, or at least trying to do so many interesting things. I respect the spirit of that movie, no pun intended, so much that it's a movie I can recommend, even if it's not a movie that really had a shot at making my top five of the year so far. My number four pick, I'm going to get a little bit of help here from one of our listeners responding to our poll question. Kristen from Ottawa, Ontario wrote in, it's a tough choice between Mad Max and Inside Out. I think they're both particularly important right now when so many women in front of and behind the camera are speaking out about the treatment of women in the industry and on screen. The fact that both films are chiefly about women, are two of the best reviewed and highest grossing films of the year, and are already in conversations for award season, is a major contrast to last year's male-dominated best of the year lists and award winners, those being Boyhood and Birdman in case you have forgotten. Inside Out could easily have been about the emotions of a young boy, but Pixar chose to make Riley a girl, thus creating a positive role model for young girls everywhere to show that it's okay to be in touch with all of your emotions, that changes are hard, and growing up can sometimes be the greatest challenge of all. It was beautiful, charming, moving, and well cast, with Phyllis Smith as sadness being the particular standout. But... This is the butt we're finally getting to, Josh. The idea that a film called Mad Max ended up being about a no-nonsense, tough, 
strong woman named Imperator Furiosa was a huge surprise. Stunning practical effects and stunts, a glorious heavy metal score, nonstop action from top to bottom. I can hardly wait to see it again, and it's my vote for best of 2015 so far. Of course, the movie Kristen is referring to is Mad Max Fury Road, and that is my number four. It's George Miller's expertly conducted symphony of chaos, as I called it during our review, and it works as just that. Kristen mentioned the practical effects and score and the nonstop action. It is intense and actually a movie deserving of the V word visceral. I think you can really get caught up in this movie, but it's also about hope and redemption and power, how power is wielded by those who have it and how it's used to oppress those who don't. And instead of trying to distract us from process, which I think a lot of directors do, they only want us focused on the result, usually because they really are deceiving us or manipulating us in some blatant way. Miller is all about revealing process. I think he's the rare illusionist who wants you to see exactly how he's doing the trick. And yet, by the end of it, instead of being disappointed, we're actually even more dazzled by the magic because we saw how they did it, how we got to that point. Fury Road actually a lot higher on most people's lists so far this year. I think it topped the IndieWire Critics Poll, and I imagine it's going to top a lot of Critics Polls at the end of the year, and it just might be one that moves up a few spots on my list as we go. We will see. I think you can see that idea of process at work just in the detail given to the vehicles alone in these races Mm -hmm. and how each band of rogue outlaws has their own design and handcrafted way of adorning their vehicles. I mean, the details in that film are really something, and I will have more to say about that when we come back. First, though, we're going to play a little bit of Massacre Theater, and to make up for lost time or the fact that we took last week off, we'll also offer up some quick thoughts on Love and Mercy and the tribe. As we do at the end of the year, our featured music this week comes from some of our favorite scores of 2015 so far. Why not start with one Scott Tobias specifically called out, Rich Reelan, a.k.a. Disasterpiece, from It Follows. Stay with us. interruption here folks to talk about our friends over at harrys.com they are fixing a problem most of us have josh you haven't really because as we've noted multiple times on the show recently you love to sport that stubble you wear it well but the last time i checked you were occasionally working in a clean shave and you were giving harry's a try yeah i usually fix the problem of paying too much for overpriced razors by not shaving fair that's one method but but if you do want to shave I'm a Harry's customer now. My sister got me a kit. Worked really well. I liked it quite a bit. It's been a few weeks since I last used it, so maybe yeah, I'm due. I can tell. I might, I might have to pick up the Harry's in the next few days. <laughs> well, I'm using it every day, and razors are expensive. They run about $4 a blade, so guys like me can end up spending hundreds of dollars a year just on razors, and it is true. When you go to grocery stores, they're so expensive and so easy to lift that they keep them behind lock and key at most pharmacies and markets. So 
they're a hassle even just to get them, which is what I love most about Harry's Josh beyond the cost is just the fact that when I'm out of razors, eight more show up at my doorstep. Every two months, I know I'm going to get those delivered along with their shaving cream and they ship them for free. I'm a Winston set user, Josh. I don't know which one you have, but the kit was shipped right to my door with the blades, the razor handle with the great look and feel, and a choice of either the shave cream or the foaming shave gel. And the starter Truman set, that's an amazing deal. You get all of that for just $15. You can go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase with the coupon code FILMSPOTTING. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at checkout. We thank Harry's for their support of Film Spotting. She was highly intelligent, the most intelligent person I knew. She was so utterly authentic. Amy, just give us a smile and then we can turn the camera off. Do you promise? (laughs) This is Film Spotting, a bit of the trailer there for the new Amy Winehouse documentary called Simply Amy. It's from the director of Senna, a great documentary from a few years back about another artist of sorts who died too soon, the late Formula One racer Ayrton Senna. And Josh, until today, I actually didn't know that the Amy documentary was from the same director as Senna. I was already curious, but I was a big fan of Senna, and so I'm now even more eager to see it. As we head into the back half of 2015, we're considering a look at Amy for our main review next week on the show. This week, we are going to continue our top five movies of the year so far in just a bit but first a little massacre theater we perform a scene badly and you get a chance at winning a prize last time guest host michael phillips and i massacred this you look lost i do where are you headed well i was just about to figure that out well that's 83 south and this road here will hook you up with i-40 east um if you turn right That'll take you to Amarillo, Flagstaff, California. And if you head back that direction, you'll find a whole lot of nothing all the way to Canada. I got it. All right, then. Good luck, cowboy. That's Laurie White as Bettina Peterson and Tom Hanks as Chuck Nolan in 2000's Castaway, written by William Broyles Jr. and directed by Robert Zemeckis. A couple weeks back on episode 543, Josh and Michael Phillips reviewed Inside Out and replayed their top five actor-director pairings. Paul Dixon Lennett, a film spotting listener in Vancouver, B.C., wrote in, I knew it immediately, as it's also one of my favorite movie endings. That final scene is a nice one. Long lines, noiseless wind, a faint tinkering of Alan Silvestri's score. It's just nice. So many connections this week. Let's just stick to the obvious ones. Hanks and Zemeckis have worked together multiple times, most notably in Forrest Gump, but again in Castaway and the creepy peepers effort of the Polar (laughs) Express that followed shortly after. This ties in with the week's theme of actor-director duos. However, there are some other interesting connections. 
you reviewed Pixar's Inside Out, and I couldn't help but connect Hanks, a.k.a. Woody, to the studio's continued success. Not to mention the both Castaway and Inside Out feature lovably anthropomorphized characters like Joy, Sadness, and Wilson the Volleyball, who feels more like Joy's snarky little brother, in my opinion. Both films also deal with deeply cerebral themes, getting lost, being found, discovering yourself, you know, just standard life stuff. I love your show and wanted to thank you for your consistently insightful reviews and opinions. Listening to you guys talk about movies has reignited in me a love of not just cinema, but prose and symbolism and art. Thank you. Well, thank you, Paul. Indeed. And of course, you and Michael and our producer, Sam, had all of those ideas, all of those connections in mind when you picked Inside Out. Well done, everyone. We had we had a few of them. <laughs> but look how many more Paul found. We also heard from Christina from an island in the Caribbean. That's very mysterious. It is. It's just, she must be a spy. What better imaginary friend than Wilson, the volleyball in Castaway? A character in itself, Wilson reveals the inner world of Tom Hanks' character. Wilson is his challenger, his friend, his companion, and his hope. For me, the most touching moment moments of the movie are the makeup scene when Hank's character makes amends after a fight by repainting Wilson's face with his own blood, and later on the surrendering moment. In my opinion, a deeply emotional and spiritual film. I owe it to my loving boyfriend who tuned me into all the symbolic moments of the movie, which made me appreciate it more and more. Kudo to Josh's impersonation of Tom Hanks, which was spot on, even if only in a couple of lines. I usually run out of gas after that. so <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> brilliant, though, she hey, says. I'll take it. I love, love, love the show. You keep me company during many long hours of running. In a way, you are my own imaginary friends, as I often participate in the polemic discussions in my head. Very similar to Chuck Nolan on the beach, probably there in the Caribbean, right? Oh, that's what it is. Okay. No, isn't he in the... He's in the South Pacific. No, I'm going to trust that Christina's from where she says she is, even though she is being very mysterious about it. One of my favorite comments that we saw this week, in addition to people just being aghast that Michael somehow had never seen... Castaway, Isn't that something? Was people who wanted us to discard any entry that spelled Castaway as one word. Oh. We did not do that. No, we're not going to be that picky. We're not. One other funny connection that our very attuned listeners caught, or at least one of them, Troy Dildeen in Boulder, Colorado. He said there was a mention in that show of The Apartment because there was discussion, of course, of Jack mm-hmm. Lemon and Billy Wilder in those pairings. He says there's that quote, shipwrecked like Robinson Crusoe. Wow. So that is digging that's deep. It's a deep cut. <laughs> Nicely done, Troy. Because we didn't exclude the people who incorrectly identified or incorrectly spelled the title of Castaway. We have a fairly brimming film spotting hat. Josh, reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Eric McConnell in Quincy, Illinois. Congratulations, Eric. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. Did Eric spell it correctly? Do we know? Good question. Because otherwise he should only get half a (laughs) t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. We cruise along now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and I don't think we're going to give any hints as far as connections to this week's show. It's a fairly short scene, but fairly obvious, I think, in terms of any tie-ins. And I'm going to try not to take any of this personally, because some of this dialogue I'm going to be hearing is pretty insulting. I'm going to really let you have it. (laughs) Get it all out This may not be acting. (laughs) We may have a crossover moment here, Josh. So you started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. Why'd you do that? I don't like that surfing shit. Rock and roll's been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Don't you think the Beach Boys are boss? You would, you grungy little twerp. Grungy? You big weenie? If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. Yeah, sure. 
and <laughs> scene. I don't know. I got called a big weenie. Yeah, I, I follow, think I bore the brunt. I of deeply that. apologize. We haven't had a a good uh, review fight like that in a while. Yeah, <laughs> well, we got it out of the way there. And now I know what to call you the next time <laughs> we do. If you know what scene we just massacred, we're going back. There's a little bit of a hint. Nostalgia. Just think nostalgia. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 20th. Winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. We still have our top three movies of the year so far ahead, but first we did want to spend a couple of minutes on two movies that are among the most acclaimed movies of the year, even if they didn't quite make the cut for my list or your list, Josh. Here's our friend Michael Phillips to start us off. It's Michael Phillips here. Um, great to great to have this opportunity to talk about Love and Mercy, uh, one of my favorite films of the year so far. Uh, this is uh, Bill Polad's Brian Wilson musical biopic, I guess you'd call it, but it really doesn't behave or feel like any other musical biopic I've seen at least for years. And Paul Dano, uh, an actor I've always found a slightly self-conscious and ticky and show-offy a little bit, and however skilled, is, is here giving just a really first-rate performance. Makes me rethink his talent in general. And the whole film is sad, wise, really moving, and in the end, very affirmative about all kinds of things. So, yeah, no, I love it. See you if you haven't, folks. Bye. I did just finally catch up with... Love and Mercy, last night in preparation for my top five, I thought it might have a chance of making the cut. Didn't quite, but it is among the better films of the year so far. And when Michael Phillips is right, he's right. I agree with him right down the line on this movie. I think that it is a rare type of biopic that isn't so much interested in events or imparting information or trying to come up with pat psychological answers for the reason geniuses behave the way they do. In this case, it's pretty well impossible to try to understand the way Brian Wilson's brain works. And director Bill Polad respects that. And the score and the sound design perfectly appropriate for a movie about Brian Wilson reflects that inner turmoil and puts us sort of in the same headspace as him, which is often not a very safe or inviting headspace to be. And Paul Dano, I'm with Michael in terms of always having some reservations about him as an actor for those reasons, a little bit of a self-conscious performer, as Michael put it. And you don't get that sense at all with his performance as Brian Wilson. It really is among not only the best performances he's ever given, but among the best performances of the year so far. And I think he's matched, actually, by Elizabeth Banks, who plays his love interest and sort of his redeemer, the person who really helped save him from Paul Giamatti's evil Eugene Landy, the doctor who has him under his thumb and is actually his legal guardian. Giamatti's great. He's always good. And maybe it's just because I love him so much as an actor. I wish that he had a little bit more to that role because you don't quite get the full sense of him as anything more than the villain he is. You don't really get that full seductive charm that you recognize he must have had in order to exert the type of control he did over Brian Wilson and other people surrounding Wilson and him. But then again, the movie really is about the time in Wilson's life where he's completely under the clutches of Landy already. So it's not as if we need to see him develop that trust. The movie doesn't really spend a whole lot of time on that. Of course, it doesn't hurt that the music is wondrous as well. So with Michael overall, 
highly recommending Love and Mercy, if I don't quite love it as much as he does among his very favorite of the year. Well, I'm glad you could be my canary in the biopic mind, because you know I'm very hesitant when it comes to this genre in general, especially when it's a figure as renowned as Brian Wilson. So to hear that it all I basically have to hear is that it does avoid those traps. And yeah, that's one that I will definitely catch at some point before the year ends. In our poll question, one of the other votes came in from Jody Christ in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Love and Mercy was her pick. And I just wanted to give credit, as she does, to Atticus Ross for the score. As I mentioned, the music and the sound design is one of the real strengths of the film. And Jody goes on to say that working at a movie theater allowed me to see many movies this year. However, none of them have given me the emotional experience I had with Love and Mercy. So a lot of talk there about sound, of course, being a movie about Brian Wilson. We go from that to the complete opposite, a movie that only has natural sound, right? But no dialogue That's whatsoever. Right. The tribe. No dialogue, no music at all from what I can recall. Certainly no composed music on the soundtrack. And the reason the tribe is structured this way is because it is set in a Ukrainian boarding school for deaf students. And rather than provide voiceover, could have given us some communication or subtitles, certainly the writer-director Miroslav Slavoshpitsky has given us nothing. He's just dropping us in this world. And if you don't know sign language, you're just going to have to figure it out. Which you don't? I don't. No, I don't. I do not. I know nothing. I know a lot of parents these days are instructing their kids in sign language, even if they can hear. And we never really got into that. So I was completely left adrift. And it was amazing how much, and I'm sure that the sound design emphasize this as well, but you begin to try to glean information elsewhere. So your ears are picking up things like the creak of a chair that are probably happening in any other scene, but you just never notice, or footsteps going down a hall. And your eyes are scanning the screen for more information to fill in. Okay, what could they be talking about? What's happening here? And it's helpful that Slobishpitsky uses a lot of static long single takes, usually from a distance, and doesn't interrupt them with edits at all. So in seemingly gives us more information to take in. It also increases this sense of claustrophobia as well, because editing allows us to breathe, right? It gives us that space, that mental space to feel like, okay, something else is happening, even if it's within the same scene. You don't get that here. So you're with these characters entirely, yet you're outside of them and left outside. And I have to think perhaps it's, I felt like a stranger, you know, in this world where I was, my senses were deprived and perhaps it's something like one of these students might feel if they went out into the real world where everyone else is talking and they can't make out what's going on. So certainly a formerly ingenious film. That's one of the reasons I think it is a good candidate for the golden brick, as well as the fact that Slobosh I don't believe, has made another feature. Uh, but there's something else about where this movie goes that I'm still trying to wrestle with. It turns out that this boarding school is basically a hotbed of crime. Mm -hmm. And these students, there's a new student who comes to the school. So we sort of follow him. He falls in with these older boys who are running a gang inside the school. And we're not talking about just roughing up and stealing money from the younger kids. They do that too. But we're talking about assaulting, violently assaulting pedestrians nearby and robbing them. They prostitute two of the other female students at a nearby truck stop, and we see we follow them through this routine. So this is some really rough stuff going on here. And 
in a way, the claustrophobia of the film works against it. We never quite get a sense of, at least I didn't, of why Slavoj decided to take the film in that narrative direction. I suppose you could say that it's in some way these kids are expressing anger at uh, their disability or the way society has treats them as outcasts. And this is how they're getting back. That's one possible idea. But the movie didn't give me a lot of evidence mm-hmm. for that. It's just something I'm trying to place on top of it. And so what I was left with is it, it's a very spiritually deadening experience because even this main kid who gets increasingly violent it, We don't get to understand him at all. There's no context. We don't see much of the outside world in this film. And so that made it very deadening for me. The movie removes empathy, the structure and the form of it. Because we are left without being able to understand them, it removes empathy in a very interesting way. But it never goes about to supply that in another formal element or in the narrative. And so you leave it really worn out. And without, say, you know, something like A Clockwork Orange, which these kids remind us a lot, they reminded me of Droogs, it doesn't work as a social commentary like that film did. And it also doesn't work. Do you remember Artico that we saw mm-hmm. at the Chicago International Film Festival, the Spanish film that was about antisocial teens as well and had similarly long takes? That film at the same time did a few things that allowed us to experience the kids as humans. And one of those things was a formal choice that could have been done in this film, extreme close-ups of those kids. And so I kept thinking back to that while watching The Tribe. And for me, that was something that was missing to it. But still, for its formal elements alone, it's something to be experienced. I've never seen a film try something like this. And it definitely opened up both eyes and ears to watching movies in a new way. Hmm. I've only picked up bits and pieces about this movie online since it came out. And going to your point about an explanation, perhaps, for why it goes to that really spiritually dead subject matter and social commentary, too. I've seen the notion that maybe it is supposed to be a reflection, a metaphor, if you will, for institutions. We're supposed to see this institution as a reflection of other institutions that are perhaps as corrupt or not, again, been picking that up just in bits and pieces online because I haven't seen The Tribe yet, but it's one of my big regrets in a movie I do plan to see soon, just as you regret not seeing Love and Mercy. So We'll we get together some night, and you sit in one room, I'll sit in the other, and we'll, we'll watch the other films. It sounds great. Do we get to share popcorn? Yeah, we'll pass it back and forth. <laughs> We've got a few more recommendations when we come back with our final picks for the best movies of the year so far. The Film Spotting Top 5 wraps up next. And we've got some more of our favorite movie music of the year so far. This is a taste of Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow's work from Alex Garland's Ex Machina, a movie that just might come up here before the end of the show. Stay with us.
thank you time here, Josh. And it's been a little while since we've last done donations and read some comments from our listeners because of our hectic summer schedule. But that hasn't stopped our listeners from being incredibly generous, both with their money and with their thoughts and feedback on the show. We start with Grant in Austin, Texas. Thanks so much for all you do. I've been a loyal listener since the very early days of Cinecast and still can't wait to get the latest show every week. Once or twice a year, I get together with my brother and two of my cousins for what we refer to as a film and food festival. We basically take two or three days off work added to a weekend and plow through 20 to 25 movies in four or five days. That and pig out on as many great Austin restaurants as we can. You guys have been a huge help in programming our fests, both through current reviews and discovering classics via marathons and top fives. In case you're curious, here's a link to a Google Doc where we track the movies and restaurants we hit each time I we wonder, get together. I wonder if Grant will let us share that with our listeners. If he says yes, we will put that Google Doc link in our show notes so you can see the great restaurants in Austin and also the movies they've been watching. And I don't know, I don't want to presume that maybe they're young and don't have kids and families and other stuff to worry about. But man, do you remember it when sure we were young sounds like and it. we could do things like that? How much fun <laughs> does that sound? And of course, Grant was hoping that we would make it down to Austin, as many listeners were, for a meetup this summer. We're still going to do a road meetup slash live event at some point. Alas, it will not happen this summer. Yeah, and it, we, weren't, we weren't just teasing. I mean, we had the weekend blocked off. We, we were we talking about venues, venues. So yep. we, we did really want to do it, and things just piled up where it couldn't be possible. But I, I don't know if we want to put a date on it, but we're definitely looking to take the show on the road. And most likely Austin, I think we can mm-hmm. say. We'd, we'd really like to go there. This donation comes to us from Belgrade, Serbia. I'm not going to say the name, Josh, because as you'll see here in a moment. You have to do the honors. I only found out about film spotting last week almost by accident. I was browsing through Slate's list of 25 best podcast episodes ever and saw your double bill episode number 300 top 20 films of the decade. I was immediately drawn by the tone of the discussion. Somehow the show avoided being dumbed down all the while maintaining a warm, inclusive spirit of Bonhomie and conveying Maddie and Adam's genuine love of film. I've since downloaded a couple of more recent episodes and discovered I was thoroughly hooked. P.S. I can't wait to hear what Josh will do with my name if this gets read on the show. <laughs> okay. I don't think you can screw this one up. Uh, well, really? I don't. All right. A-N-D-R-E-J. Yeah. I'm going to ignore the J. Yeah. I, I'm going to, you know, Go it's it. just there to trip me up. It's a trap. Andre yeah. is setting a trap for me and I'm not going to fall in it, Andre. I think you're right. Okay, good. I think you're right. We'll that was see. easy. We'll hear. Or not. <laughs> we have a couple new Silver Club donors, David R. in Chicago, Jane in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, and Leonard in Wilmington, Delaware, and a couple new $5 a month donors, including Aaron Steingold here in Chicago, who says, your show makes driving in Chicago tolerable. I think that's our new tagline. <laughs> well, Put it we could aim higher, Why but not? hey. <laughs> and Colin Hinckley in Brooklyn, New York, who sent us a really nice note and some feedback on episode 532, where I think it was Michael Phillips and I did our 21st century horror movies. Right. Yeah, our favorite 21st century horror show. movies. Yeah, the It Follows episode. And I had Zodiac at number one. And Colin, he really took issue with that. He said that it's not a horror movie. It's a thriller. Sure, it has horror elements and borrows some of the tropes of the genre, but horror, it is not. And he says this bothers him because horror is a genre that is much maligned among cinephiles and not giving a true horror film the top spot furthers the idea that it is not a serious genre. Hmm. I think, okay. he, I think he has a point. I listened to that show and you made a good case for it. I think psychological horror, maybe you could particularly mm-hmm. consider it to be. Um, but I can understand Colin's objection. Fine. 
Fine, just sell me out. Go ahead. A new $10 a month donation comes from Jeff Post in Centennial, Colorado, who says you all put on a brilliant show, so I hereby pay the dealer, and we may repay Jeff with another comment from him a bit later here in the show. That brings us to our grand finale, Josh, which I know you haven't read, so this is going to make this a lot of fun, hopefully. Is it another test? Well, kind of. A pronunciation test? We'll see how you respond. And yes, it is about pronunciation. Oh, on great. some level, uh, John W. in Tamaru, New Zealand, who says, hey, Adam and Josh. All right. An issue I have with your show has arisen, and it's finally prompted this donation. Oh, so far, so good. <laughs> I will explain why later. For a while now, well, basically since he's been on the show, Josh has had an irritating habit of using the phrase, a whole nother. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're guilty. <laughs> yes. As in, then it takes it to a whole nother level. Josh, another isn't a word no matter how many times you use it. I noticed it a few times in, and ever since I started to notice, it's really grated on my soul every time to the point where I started counting how often he used it. I won't lie to you. It's pretty much every review. <laughs> then on last I week's show, key on your computer. I was, yeah, I just pressed that. I was appalled that in your discussion of dope, Adam used the same phrase, and I realized he was picking up Josh's bad I habits. I like that he blames you for it. He doesn't blame me. <laughs> I like that I have that influence. As a former smoker, I understand how hard it is to break bad habits. So there's the stick. Now, here's the carrot. Guys, I will happily double this donation if Josh, and you too, Adam, can go two months, that's HOs, without using the phrase a whole nother once. <laughs> I'll even throw in a few extra bucks if you can phrase it correctly. A whole other or a whole different. I don't mind which. You'll then be on your way to being completely free of the habit. You'll feel happier, healthier, you'll sleep better. I love everything else you guys do, and I'm hoping you can iron out this one bump in an otherwise seamless show. Wow. Well, <laughs> I take up the challenge, one. but I, I've probably already said it eight times on this show. That's true. I think this one is out. I was going to say that this is a platinum-level donation. It is a big donation. Wow. He's willing to double it. So that commitment really does take this to a whole nother level. <laughs> It makes it something we have to strongly consider. Did you say a whole other no, level? I didn't. Well, if I hadn't blown it, now you just did, and we got to start all over again. I, I'm, ha- I'm hey, hey, I'm happy to give this a try. I, but is this a South Side Chicago maybe thing? Maybe, but I, mean, I said it, and I'm from Iowa, so yeah. But you've been hanging out with me. That's true. Maybe it has been rubbing off. Here's my thing. You tell me if you agree or not. It's a colloquialism. You can say it. You would never write it. I would never write it. If I saw one of your reviews on your website and you said a whole nother, I would lose my mind and say you were the worst film critic of all time. But in speaking, there are certain things we say colloquially. That's a hard word to say. But there are certain things we all just sort of understand that we can say. It's not the same thing as completely misusing a word or completely mispronouncing a word. No, it's more of like a dialect thing. That's why I wonder if it's the South Side influence. But, you know, it's probably one of those things that it wouldn't kill me to try to finesse out. So I'm up for it, especially if there's cash involved. There you go. We'll do anything for money. (sighs) We'll never say whole nother again. Wow. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Greetings, listeners of Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, inviting you to listen to our latest episode where myself, Allison Wilmore, 
and a multicultural cast from around the world will connect our brains telepathically to review the Wachowskis' new Netflix series, Sense8. The rest of this week's episode is devoted to the Wachowskis as well. We'll tell you where you can rent or stream all of their work online, and we'll discuss their career to date in all of its ups and downs. This week on SVU, there truly is no spoon. To listen, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Hello, Film Spotting. This is Steve Green, contributor for IndieWire and CriticWire, calling in with my favorite film of 2015 so far. It's a movie that I saw at the LA Film Festival last year. Absolutely loved. I've been recommending to everybody ever since, and I'm so glad it finally got a theatrical release earlier this year. It is Dave Boyle's Man from Reno. Uh, it is the story of a Japanese crime novelist who, uh, while on a book tour in San Francisco, discovers a mystery that she didn't quite anticipate. Um, this is more than just sort of an average neo-noir. Um, it's got a finely crafted script. Uh, the visuals are great from frame one. Um, it's really subtle character work from the, uh, from the lead performances. Uh, it's an ending that really sticks to landing. Uh, it has stuck with me ever since. Uh, it is my favorite movie of 2015 so far, Man from Reno. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. Uh, congratulations on 10 great years and looking forward to 10 more. You guys are the best. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. We return to our countdown of the top five films of the year so far with that voicemail from IndieWire critic Steve Green. We've heard from him before in the past few years, Josh. And one of the reasons we include voicemails, we solicit them from fine critics like Steve, is so we can get picks like that one of movies that I honestly had not even heard of before Steve called in. Who does Steve think he is? Michael Phillips? I mean, that's usually Michael's job, (laughs) right? Yeah, but this one, is it from 1936? Well, that's true. It's from 2015. Man from Reno. It sounds fascinating. If you are similarly in the dark as I am and you want to learn more about the movie, which from the research I did online today, Josh, seems like it's a pretty tough movie to come across. It's not one that's just readily available anywhere. The website is manfromrenomovie.com. Thank you, Steve, for that. We're at our top three, Josh. What is your number three movie of 2015 so far? We're going to go back to Mad Max Fury Road. It it deserves a little more time. It's number three on my list. A movie like this could almost single-handedly justify the tiresome sequels and reboot trends that we're in the midst of. It's such a fresh spin while still being rooted in the original world of Mad Max. And that's because, as you mentioned, director George Miller is the steady, constant hand here. We both raved about it on episode 539. I'm not going to spend too much more time on it myself, and I'm certainly not going to revisit the is it feminist debate (laughs) that we got into a little bit. But I do want to bring up a detail we didn't talk about very much. I don't think we did, Uh, even though we did spend a lot of time on the character of Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron. I was listening to the BBC movie podcast with Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode, and one of their listeners wrote in. I'm pretty sure this is where I heard it. It was a while ago. Uh, A woman who described herself as being physically disabled, and she said that she appreciated not only the fact that Furiosa is shown as a capable woman with a prosthetic arm, but that the movie doesn't even really make a big deal of the fact that she's missing a limb. And I remember that did stand out to me too, because it's not even revealed until she's been on screen for a good long time. And then it's done so casually. I mean, it's revealed is too strong of a word. They don't even make a moment of it, uh, at least the way I recall it. So that's a small thing, but I do think that it speaks to the sort of sensitivity that's on display in this otherwise loud and raucous action movie. You know, there's this sensitivity to it that 
can also be felt in the depiction of the women characters overall. So Mad Max Fury Road is still in theaters. If somehow a listener has not seen it yet, and really that's the way you should see it on the big screen. Absolutely. My number three pick to help me do the honors is listener Willie Evans, who responded to our poll question to name the best film of the year so far thusly. I want to show some love to Clouds of Sils Maria. Perhaps you decided to leave this movie off your list because of its convoluted release schedule, but because it wasn't released in the U.S. until 2015, I'm going to count it as a 2015 movie. Well, Willie, we are counting it as a 2015 movie as well. Clouds of Sils Maria not only features a terrific performance from one of our greatest actresses in Juliette Binoche, but also a surprisingly great performance from Kristen Stewart, who manages to keep her hands away from her hair for a full two hours. Featuring some of the best cinematography of the year by Only Lovers Left Alive cinematographer Yorick Lassau, Clouds of Sils Maria is beautiful, complex, and honest. It comments on the state of filmmaking, art, and Hollywood in a way that Inyaritu could only dream of, while also maintaining touching and very human stories for all three of its main characters. Even though anyone who watched it because they love Kristen Stewart and Twilight probably walked out of the theater, it was one of the most beautiful and profound experiences I've had at the movies this year. And then Willie has to go and ruin it, Josh, by tagging it this way. Ultimately, though, in the poll for best movie of the year so far, I had to go with Mad Max because explosions are cool. <laughs> you just c- couldn't resist the you explosions. You can't argue with that. You <laughs> no. can't argue with that. But I'm so glad Willie took the time to give some love to Clouds of Sils Maria. It is my number three movie of the year so far from director Olivier Asseas. It's about a famous actress, French actress, who reluctantly agrees to take a role in a revival of a play that made her famous 20 years prior. But now she's playing the older, more tragic figure in the play, not the young, seductive one. And Kristen Stewart is her assistant. It's funny that Willie mentions Twilight because Stuart and Aseas are very much playing with her public persona and the perception of actresses like her who star in movies like Twilight. And I remember when I heard that Stuart had won the César Award, basically the French Oscar for Best Actress, I thought, wow, those crazy French, they've done it again. (laughs) Or maybe the envelope was supposed to say Benoche's name on it, and somehow they made a mistake and gave it to Stuart. But then you see Clouds of Sils Maria and you realize that Stuart's brilliant in it. She is. And she's completely up to the challenge. And part of Benoche's brilliance as an actress is being fully willing to support Stuart in a lot of these scenes, to be dominated in a scene, even as her character is in a position of power Hmm. over Stuart's throughout. That give and take, that conflict is really central to the whole movie. And David Edelstein, one of my favorite critics writing in New York Magazine, perfectly articulated, he said, there's so little in the way of histrionics that it's hard to put one's finger on why the film is so terrifically intense, except that each actress is, in her own peculiar way, preternaturally high-strung, able to convey momentous emotional stakes without raising her voice above the pitch of conversation. And for the record, I did not just Google Clouds of Sils Maria and Stakes and pick out my favorite quote, though thank you, David, for using our favorite word here on Film Spotting. It's hard to put one's finger on everything about Clouds of Sils Maria. It's a slippery, philosophical, enigmatic film, but never willfully obtuse. And it doesn't frustrate, or I never felt frustrated at how the conversations largely between these two characters meander and don't really ever seem to resolve. In fact, I felt the opposite. I kind of wish, Josh, that I could actually just turn on my TV whenever I wanted to and check in on these two women. So, what you were saying earlier was that, and like Joanne, I don't take that kind of role seriously. Hmm? What? No. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. But I have disdain for those characters and their cartoonish psychology. But she doesn't. Mm. She makes her superior to me. 
Uh oh. Don't get jealous. Not an attractive quality. She dives headfirst into a character's ambiguities, but I don't. That's why I admire what she does. Yeah. You know, I think that when you watch her in a movie like the one we saw tonight, there is there is no distance there. It's normal. It's a, a culture, right? Yeah. Agreed. What's wrong with my acting? Nothing. <laughs> what do I need to do to make you admire me? Do I think too much? Huh? Want to classical, not liberated like Joanne? <laughs> You're here to talk to me, so start talking. I mentioned George Miller. You did as well for Mad Max Fury Road as an illusionist. There's a legitimate sense of the supernatural at work here in this movie with what Aseas is doing, or at least the ethereal. And by the end of it, you have to question how much of it is truly tethered to reality, which I think just heightens that intensity that David Edelstein spoke of even more. Yeah, this is one that I missed the window on, and I thought I was going to be able to catch up with it, but it turns out, I think, is it July 14 that it's available on DVD? Exactly. It's coming up so, here. So, there you yeah. go. So, By the time you hear this, you can probably get it on DVD, most of the people out there. And I will be doing that. All right, number two, here's where it gets really good for me. These are, on my own site, I, I do four-star ratings, and uh, these two are the ones so far that have gotten a four-star rating from me. White God is what I have, and number two. It's a really wild and audacious movie from Hungary about a young girl whose beloved dog named Hagen is abandoned on the streets by her father. And then the dog has this harrowing journey, which culminates in a stray dog revolt of sorts that's filmed. Spoilers, Josh. On the, Spoilers. Well, you know, it's like the main scene of the film okay. that's right in the trailer. So I won't give you the details of how that comes about. But basically, this takes place on the streets of Budapest and does involve 250 actual animals. It's really something to see. Now, the writer and director, Cornel Mondrusco, intercuts between the girl, played by Sofia Posada, and the dog. So it essentially is equating their coming-of-age experiences a little bit. She's often facing discipline from her father, or she's being trained to be more refined and more cultured and, and to get the wildness of her childhood out of her. And this especially happens with the conductor of her youth orchestra, where she plays the trumpet. So if Hagen is continually being domesticated against his will, so is, is she. This is all done with a darkly comic touch. And I saw it at, thankfully, I had one shot to see this at the After Film Society, which is a group in Downers Grove, a suburb in Chicago here, and they were playing it. And I was laughing. Once I got my bearings, I was doing a lot of laughing. A few other people were in the theater, but most people were perplexed by this thing. I think it's really funny and it knows what it's doing. And that way it will work as both um, there's some disturbing social realism element and then this absurdist social commentary going on at the same time that's almost cartoonish. So imagine maybe this film has already come to mind, but Robert Brisson's out Hazard Balthazar, but if it had taken a turn into 28 Days Later, or something like Rise of the Planet of the Apes, if it had been directed by the Darden brothers. Love it. Or maybe a rabid Black Beauty. That came to mind, too. Uh, this is just, it's, all of those apply, because it's a thrilling, darkly funny mixture of high art, low art, and what it's getting at, I think, is how we do hide behind civilized culture, the most civilized culture we can create to mask and deny our basest instincts. So this one will be out on DVD soon as well. White God is coming out July 28th. All those descriptions, you sold me. Yeah? Yeah, I have I seen can't it wait yet. to I'm hear what in. you think of this thing because it's insane. And uh, that could, you could really go for it or it would put you off. So we'll see. 
Well, I couldn't wait to hear what you thought of my number two film of 2015 so far, and then we reviewed it, and you just ripped out my heart <laughs> oh, and stepped geez. all over it. It what is, is this? Noah Baumbach's While We're Young. Oh, come on. The only movie of the year I've actually seen twice, though that really doesn't mean anything. That was kind of an anomaly. Number two. Random. I'm putting it at number two. Again, reserve the right to shift that around as we get through the year. But That'll be shifted. It might be. It might be. <laughs> But Although you've seen it twice, so I'm I got to give you that. It. I liked it even more the second time, and I feel like if I saw it a third, I'd like it even more wow. the third. It is my lone outlier as well in that all my previous picks, Inside Out, Fury Road, Clouds of Sils Maria, these are all movies that are pretty well critically acclaimed. And if you look at a lot of articles or polls so far here at the Midway Point, they're well represented. Not that this movie didn't get generally favorable reviews because it did, but looking just at one poll, the IndieWire critics poll, while we're young was 35th for the record, white God 36. So both of us with outliers in our number two spots. I think when we reviewed this movie, I overstated just a little bit how much funnier and how much better in general I thought this movie was than Noah Baumbach's other films. Looking back over his filmography, I've only disliked one of his movies, Margot at the Wedding. This is the one that stars Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts as a childless couple. He's a documentary filmmaker. She's a documentary filmmaker producer whose lives get turned upside down when they are befriended by a young hipster couple played by Amanda Seyfried and... Adam Driver. And just like what we do in the shadows with you, Josh, this is the movie that made me laugh out loud the most that I've seen so far this year. And I appreciated the camera. I appreciated the editing, the way that we see Baumbach do some things I hadn't seen from him before in terms of using editing and shot selection to enhance the comedy and underscore some of the key themes. I do think the performances are all pretty strong. I really do like Adam Driver and Adam Horowitz as well in a real supporting turn in this movie. Oh, we met this interesting couple, Jamie and Darby. He's a young documentarian, and she makes ice cream. I don't know what to make of them, honestly. I like her. They make everything. It's infectious. For about 12 hours, I thought I could build my own desk. There's something about being around them that energizes you, you know? How old are they? 25, 26, 27. They're children. Yeah, nine years ago, they couldn't vote. But they're married. Why? You should see this guy's record collection. It's Jay-Z, it's Thin Lizzy, it's Mozart. His taste is democratic. It's The Goonies and it's Citizen Kane. They don't distinguish between high and low. It's wonderful. When did The Goonies become a good movie? The big thing that really connected with me, though, I think, is just this genuine uncynical desire I saw on the part of the characters to try to connect, to try to be better people. And the fact that they are consistently failing in every capacity as a husband, as a friend, as a professional, whatever it is, that's where a lot of the humor really comes from. And one thing I don't think we talked about, but it was certainly in my notes when we reviewed it, is how this movie directly relates to one of Baumbach's other recent films with Ben Stiller, Greenberg. The scene in that movie is that speech that the Greenberg character gives at a party where he's talking to a bunch of young hipster characters, very similar to Driver in this movie. And one of the things he says is, you're just so sincere and interested in things. And he means that in a really hurtful way. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he says, I'm freaked out by you kids. I hope I die before I end up meeting one of you in a job interview. That kind of loathing, that type of cynicism that comes through in the Greenberg character is completely replaced here in this movie. It's dealt with in a totally different way in While We're Young. That sincerity and that interest in things and the democracy of their interests is really what draws this character to 
the younger people in this movie. And so I like those movies as kind of a point counterpoint that maybe Baumbach is working through. And because of the strength of this movie, I can't wait for his other movie that's coming out in limited release August 14th. Mistress America is getting a lot of good buzz already. It's another collaboration with Baumbach's love interest in real life, Greta Gerwig. They last worked together as star and co-writer Francis Ha. But right now, Josh, while we're young, is my second favorite film of the year so far. Yeah, well, you know, you've seen it twice, so you know it better than me, but I think you're really, really overrating this thing. It's it's just, you know, the, the adage is write what you know, and you apply that to filmmakers, film what you know. And I think Balmack has, has done that, and sometimes I feel there are certain filmmakers where you want to tell them the opposite. And th- just this story, I feel like he's another story of a New York intellectual artist struggling with, intellectual problems and this movie did not find anything to really dig into i I felt it was my favorite genre that's my favorite movie i know i know i mean this the the thing was made for you essentially (laughs) but but even so there there isn't any meat here for me there wasn't any meat where he, he he really found okay here's i'm here again what do I what do I have to say again about this? And it to well, me it turned out to be eh, as not I tried much. to articulate. He is dealing with some different shades of gray on some of these subjects than he has in other movies. And still, I think Slight our shades. biggest Slight I think our shades. biggest well that's that's what artists should do. They don't need to make drastic left turns in their work, especially when they make as many. Not films everyone needs not everyone does. needs to, but but I think our biggest point of contention here is at the end of the day, I thought it was really funny and you didn't. And it's dealing with a lot of big ideas, but for me, they're all secondary to the characters and to some of the themes he's dealing with and to the humor. Yeah. It's all in the if it, had, if it doesn't make you laugh, then you're going to find it potentially very preachy. If it had maintained, right, if it had maintained the, the very funny first 20, 25 minutes, uh, which I did think were quite good, then I probably could have been carried along through it. It's it's just, he seems to lose interest in the material that was providing that humor, jumps onto other things, and for me, the humor dissipated. All right, let's Why get to... Why don't we get to something you're right about? Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I would like that. It happens to be a film you're right about, too. Judging by how these lists are coming together, I think we will be very much in agreement on Ex Machina. This has been the clear choice for my favorite film of 2015 since we reviewed it on episode 535. It did receive a healthy challenge for the top spot from White God, but I'm going to stick with it for now. It's screenwriter Alex Garland's directorial debut about a reclusive tech genius played by Oscar Isaac, who brings an employee to his remote estate to test an artificially intelligent robot, and the robot's played by Alicia Vikander in a really strong performance. So yeah, you and I raved about it at length on our show. I'm not going to say much more myself, but I do want to share a bit from Tasha Robinson's review over at The Dissolve. She didn't like it quite as much as me or as you, but had this interesting observation in her review. It's the details that are surprising and purposefully alarming. Garland shot the film in low light with a mostly desaturated palette and in a setting made largely from smoked glass, dull metals, and polished wood. The environment itself becomes oppressively soulless and poreless, a repudiation of the whispering trees and rushing river just outside the walls. The spare, chilly, synthy score follows suit with a suggestively throbbing theme that's designed to unnerve viewers and imply a lurking threat. The whole film feels alert and alarmed in a way that makes Caleb and Ava's mild fencing about identity and intention and Caleb and Nathan's more complicated and contentious relationship seem perpetually on the verge of violence. Yeah, this is this is partly what I meant when I described Ex Machina as merciless and efficient. It's a movie that really put me in a vice grip. And if the New York artist intellectual scene is your thing, 
sci-fi, smart, thrilling sci-fi is women? my thing. No, no, no. <laughs> smart sci-fi is my thing, and this does it really well. It does. And not to try to belittle our picks here for the best films of the year, doing our mid-season awards, if you will, but the AV Club really did upstage us with theirs because they called their best films of 2015 so far a halftime report in superlatives, and they gave out some awards for very specific moments and performances, and for Ex Machina, they gave it the Sam Rockwell Award for Special Achievement in Dancing, going to Oscar Isaac because of a scene in that movie, and it is something I thought about. When I watched Ex Machina, I instantly flashback to every time you've seen Sam Rockwell in a film just give a great <laughs> right, right. physical dancing performance. That is that's such a great scene. I'm almost sad that I can never experience it again because it's I wish we hadn't even talked about it because it's a surprise to the film. Right. Not entirely out of character for him, but the tone of where the movie is going to suddenly get something that goofy but still fits is it was a really great experience. It was. And in the comments, Jesse Hassinger wrote, Isaac upends mad scientist cliches by making Nathan deceptively chilled out, nursing beers and calling Caleb dude. At one point, he deflects Caleb's questions about his treatment of Ava by prompting Kyoko to start dancing and then joins in himself. Isaac's limber, straight-faced silliness in this scene could be described as Rockwellian, and it's exactly the kind of unexpected and weirdly human moment that makes Ex Machina more than just another cautionary tale. So, very well said, and that is, as we both noted, one of the best scenes probably in the movie. For me... I fought it, especially because I didn't want to agree with you here at the top of our list, but Ex Machina really was just the most fun movie to ponder and discuss and debate after the fact. If I look back at Matt Singer's letterbox conversation, where I commented and then some other people jumped in, it fragmented off into this notion of who do you watch the movie as? Yeah, You've got right. these three characters, and... Donald Gleason's character is the outsider who comes in and he's sort of the everyman and that's how we see things initially but then our perspective is always shifting and by the end of the film we then replay the movie in our minds a little bit and do we see it from a different character's perspective and then maybe if you actually go and physically watch the movie a second or a third time does that perspective shift even again those shifts as we talked about during our review of it are constantly in flux throughout the movie and it's so fun to debate and you can really get into it so much that matt singer and i over email were even disagreeing about whether or not at a key moment near the end of the film we feel like there was any emotion expressed by one of the characters in a simple glance like a two-second shot matt saw it one way I saw it completely differently. Hmm. And the fact is, we're both probably right. It's one of those Rorschach tests almost where I think the viewer can make of it whatever they want to make of it. The performances, not just the dancing performances, are really good here, at least from Vikander and Isaac. I wasn't sold as much on Donald Gleason, but they're a huge part of that provocative ambiguity we're discussing. The score is a key part of that as well. We heard some of it earlier in the show from the composers Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, and there is a good link online. I think maybe it was for Entertainment Weekly dot com where they broke down actually one of the scenes and how the music is used to kind of throw us off the scent a little bit in terms of how we perceive some of these characters we'll link to that in our show notes hello hi i'm caleb hello caleb do you have a name Yes. Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, too. 
just to prove that, you know, we're all about dissenting opinions here, we did get an email from Lawrence Garcia in Vancouver who said, I look forward to hearing your choices. And no, the absence of Ex Machina on my list, it wasn't there, Mad Max Fury Road topped it, is not a mistake. Not sure what you guys saw in that overwritten, predictable, and only intermittently interesting film. I do agree that the house was nice, though. Oh, he likes the house. Well... (laughs) That's something. <laughs> At least he got that out of it. Jeffrey Post has a few kinder words to say about Ex Machina. It has my favorite character of the year with Oscar Isaac's supremely confident portrayal of an intellectual genius with an alpha male inferiority complex. The closest portrayal of an alien in a strange land I've seen since Under the Skin. The best house ever. There you go. The best dance scene of the year, though full disclosure, Jeffrey says he hasn't seen Magic Mike. The best ending of the year. Mad Max, It Follows, and Inside Out were absolutely awesome, but great sci-fi rings my bell. So another robot woman lover like you, Josh, (laughs) apparently. Adam, you should watch more sci-fi. It's not all robot women. No, no. It's probably a very small small percentage. (laughs) Well, that is where we're going to close out our countdown of the best films of the year so far. Ex Machina, another movie coming out, perfect timing, July 14th. So again, by the time most people download the podcast version of this show, you will be able to hear our thoughts and then be able to watch the movie and see just how wrong we and Jeffrey are in our love for Ex Machina. Let's share the poll results, though. How did it come out when we asked people to go to filmspotting.net and pick their best movie of the year so far? We only gave you four choices because we knew it was quite likely at the time that at least three of them would make my list and at least three of them would make your list. And that is how it came out. The choices were Ex Machina, Inside Out, It Follows, Mad Max Fury Road, or Other if those four didn't do it for you, if one of those four wasn't your very favorite, Josh, how did it come out? Well, I certainly hope the paltry showing for It Follows with 5% just means a lot of people haven't seen it yet. Other came in next with 11%, Inside Out in the middle here, 14%. And then we jump up to a 24% take for Ex Machina, but clearly winning the poll is Mad Max Fury Road, 46%. Can't really argue with that one, even if we had it just a little bit lower on our list. Some of those vote getters in the other category were Faults, the cult deprogramming thriller with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, The Russian Woodpecker. This is a documentary that got the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize winner at Sundance and Matthew Vaughn's Kingsman, The Secret Service, one of those movies that looked absolutely terrible, but most critics I know actually liked. Mm -hmm. It still hasn't been enough for me to break down and watch it yet, though. Same for me. Okay. We did hear some more feedback from one of our favorite listeners, just because I love saying his name and location, Thomas D'Argent, formerly of Lyon, France. He is now of Lisbon, Portugal. Wait wait a minute. If Thomas moves one more time, are we still going to just tack that on? Totally. And we're going to keep going with Lyon? I will and... always say Thomas D'Argent from Lyon. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do it every time. Even if, even if the guy moves monthly. Great. <laughs> Why don't you share his feedback as he says he's going to bring the whole website's IQ down a couple of notches for a brief moment. Ex Machina was an outstanding thought piece that I will probably always remember as one of the most inspired sci-fi movies of my life. Mad Max Fury Road is the most successful action movie of recent years. It is artistic and manages to convey meaning and message without ever letting the action fall beneath the quite intense mark. But none of that matters. He was doing so well. The best movie of the year so far is Avengers Age of Ultron. Toma. Toma. You're gonna, we're going to take a city away, I think. <laughs> no, Tomas says it's not the most artistic, the cleverest, the most beautiful, or the best directed. Oh, well, 
and who cares? It was the most enjoyable experience I had at a movie theater in a long while. It was funny. The action was great. The villain was mostly compelling. He's like apologizing so much here. And I could bask in the warm glow of beloved characters for two hours plus. Okay. I'll always remember Ex Machina and Mad Max, but 2015 will remain the year of Age of Ultron forever. It will be the Age of Ultron. Or it would, if not for a certain lightsaber-related release. Yay. Okay, what are you buying more? This is a joke, right? Age of Ultron or While We're Young? Oh, oh. I would have said While We're Young... But now that you put it on your list, I'm going I'm going to go with Age of Ultron. You know, what's going to happen with While You're sir. Young is it, it's going to be the lock effect last year where I was mixed on lock, the Tom Hardy, the guy stuck in the car film. The more I talked and, about it. And the it. more you, you just kept going on and on about lock and it just kept seeming like thinner and thinner. Well, and, and I'm so going to hate this your is dog gonna be my <laughs> This is going to be my lock of 2015. Great. It's okay. 2015. Did Age of Ultron really come out this year? I it kind did. of forgot that Age of Ultron existed already. Okay. Well, those are our top five movies of the year so far. Josh, what about some other picks from you? Movies that just didn't quite make the top five. Okay. So Inside Out is my five and a half. And um, World of Tomorrow, I'm not putting on here. It is It is another one of those four-star movies for me. But I'm not going to get into the short films eligible thing only to ease my guilt, because what will happen is I will then think about all the short films that I'm not considering. I just don't watch a lot of short films in a year. So to put one on a top 10 really wouldn't be fair to the others. I am glad World of Tomorrow is getting a lot of attention, though, because it deserves it. Okay, my five and a half is Buzzard, the Joel Petrakis movie that's going to be one of our Golden Brick contenders. And my number six would be the Brett Morgan documentary Cobain montage of heck. Those were the two that were toughest to leave off for me that I thought had a chance of being in the top five. I did also really like the Cronenberg movie Maths to the Stars. I think one of the most underrated movies of the year, even though obviously didn't make my top five and might just miss my top 10, but the Michael Mann thriller Black Hat. Oh, you're going to be one of the Black Hatters. I am. I'm wearing it. <laughs> Do you guys it. have like a, right a tattoo now. yet? <laughs> That you all wear? <laughs> no, because I'm reserving my tattoo for one of the other underrated movies of the year, Pitch Perfect 2. Oh, come on. What about any other regrets? Do you want to name a few other titles? For me, it was The Tribe, for you, Love and Mercy, but were there any others that you just have to cop to? Okay, you can write in all you want. We're sorry. We just haven't seen them yet because I definitely have a few. I can't believe that I haven't had a chance to see my number one most anticipated summer movie, even though it's not at all what we think of as a summer movie, The Wolf Pack, that documentary. Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, another movie about movies. How have I not caught up with that one? Seymour, An Introduction, that Ethan Hawke documentary, getting a lot of love here at the Midway Point, and Girlhood a movie from France. You've seen it. I have not. Yeah, yeah, you should check that out. I had a couple I didn't get to. Timbuktu was one that uh, is available right now. I just didn't have the time. Tomorrowland, believe it or not, was one of my most anticipated of the summer. And I was gone out of the country when it opened, and it kind of opened pretty flat. So that made it a little less of a priority for me, but I am going to see that. And Unfriended, remember that horror flick that uh, That something about... Yeah, we we kind of mocked it. When it opened, yeah. um, something about uh, being haunted via social media or something. Uh, it's got a lot of support, yeah. and the concept is intriguing to me. So I will probably be checking that out before the end of the year. Tomorrowland, a huge disappointment for a lot of people. And after seeing it, I can absolutely see why. It is not even among my top 15 or 20 films of the year so far. But I did actually appreciate it more than I didn't appreciate it. I can recommend it. I think so, you need to see it. 
Okay, I was going to say, so now after you've lukewarm, recommended it. Really lukewarm. Compared to While We're Young, it's <laughs> nowhere close to the masterpiece While We're Young. Okay, is. all right. Again, those are our top five movies of the year so far. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at our website, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, and top five lists there. They are all archived. Out in wide release this weekend, Minions. Yes, the oh. Despicable Me spinoff. My kids love it. Josh, I'm gonna. Are you pro minion? Go. I, I don't have a stance. You have on to. Everyone minions. has a stance on minions. You can't have little yellow figures scream at you for 90 everyone minutes and not have, have an have opinion one minions. way or the other. You, you either think they're adorable or you want to murder them. Well, I kind of loathe Despicable Me too, so I guess I'm because of the minions. Nah, just. Because. Oh, minions. <laughs> Selfless, also out. This is a body swap sci-fi from a director you love, Tarsem Singh, Ryan yeah. Reynolds. I didn't realize he directed that. Minions, currently sporting a 63 on Metacritic. Selfless, rocking a 34. Ouch. Out in limited release, Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary, Jimmy's Hall, the latest movie from Ken Loach, of course, of Joe and The Wind That Shakes the Barley fame. Here in Chicago... The Tribe, one of those movies that came up here a couple points during the show from Ukraine set in a boarding school for the deaf. It is the one with no talking and no subtitles. And all the more fascinating for it. I'm sure you're right. It's playing at the Music Box along with Cartel Land, a documentary about vigilante justice in Mexico against drug cartels. Next week on the show, our topic is a little bit up in the air. We may do the Amy Winehouse documentary. Maybe I thought we could do a full review of The Tribe, but I don't know. It's not a bad idea. I'm, good I'm still processing it, so okay. that's not a bad idea. Eden is also a new film from Mia Hansen-Love. I gave some love to Olivier Asayas on this show for Clouds of Sils Maria. Mia Hansen-Love is Asayas' wife and a very talented filmmaker, of course, in her own right. That's a movie that also has gotten some very good reviews. So we have some options. You'll just have to stay tuned and be surprised. Any interest in Trainwreck? I forgot that you suggested that. That's opening next weekend right there's a screening we might be able to fit it in you know what that might be the way we go i want to see it okay good yeah i like amy schumer i like apatow let's do it film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van halgren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go thanks to associate producer candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at chicago public media chicago public media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community our nation and our world more information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music came from some of the year's most compelling movie scores. We did Ex Machina. We did At Follows. We had some additional help with that from friend of the show slash movie score slash movie poster expert, Sam Smith. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> now now I'm going to be listening. I know, I'm sure I, I do know. it. I'm I, sure I do well, it. Yeah, you do, obviously. obviously but but I like I too. can't like hear myself doing it, which which I can proves you your it. point. I like the second I read it in the email I was like I can think of Josh saying it. Like I can hear did it. Did I say in it in this show? In this one? I don't know. Wouldn't that be great if you did? But what if I say it like after donations? <laughs> <laughs> you probably Cause, do. Cuz we we'll recorded. Have tell, we'll have to tell Sam to keep an ear out for it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, hold on. The promo. Um